Good to see you guys, RP. I, I call you RP because I used to be at a church in town called Parker Hills. So for the longest time, I was talking to Mark, like, how's, how's Parker Redemption doing? He's like, it's not Parker Redemption. It's Redemption Parker. But it is good to be here with y'all worshiping on this Lord's Day. On Good Friday in 1963, Eight Alabama clergymen who would have looked like me, pastors, priests, even a rabbi, made a public statement strongly urging people in Birmingham, Alabama to resist demonstrations, to wait. In this statement, they said, quote, we recognize the natural impatience of people who feel that their hopes are slow in being realized, but we are convinced that these demonstrations are unwise and untimely. When Martin Luther King Jr. came across their statement, he was in the Birmingham City Jail, having been arrested for nonviolent demonstrations against segregation. This statement from his fellow white clergymen did not sit well. In his letter from Birmingham Jail, Dr. King wrote a response to these eight men. In the letter, he explains why they actually cannot wait. He says, for years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with the piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. He goes on, we must come to see with the distinguished jurist of yesterday that justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our God-given and constitutional rights. Then he gets personal. I guess it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on TV and see tears welling up in her little eyes when she is told that Fun Town is closed to the colored children and see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky. After giving several more heart-wrenching examples, he closes this paragraph by saying, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into an abyss of injustice where they experience the bleakness of corroding despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. All eight of these clergymen had a theology that promoted justice. And all but one of them would theologically affirm that Jesus was king. Where was the disconnect? I think Dr. King was on to something when he said in this letter, history is the long and tragic story of the fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. It was easy for these eight clergymen to say, wait, 
They weren't the ones having to explain to their six-year-old daughters why they couldn't go to Funtown. Over the last couple of years, I have become more and more convicted over the difference in formal and functional theology. I've now had several professors stress the importance of Christians lining the two up, bridging the gap. If the book of James tells us that even the demons believe and tremble, then my formal theology, my doctrine, my orthodoxy, as important as it is, and right belief about God is eternally important. Don't miss that. But as important as my formal theology is, my job as a Christian is to get my functional theology, my actual practice, to match my formal theology, my right doctrine. The way I live, my orthopraxy, is not to be disconnected from what I believe, my orthodoxy, but rather flowing from it. Most evangelicals today hold a view of the kingdom that theologians call inaugurated eschatology. That's a fancy way of saying already and not yet. Most Christians believe that the kingdom of heaven is already and not yet here. What they mean is that Christ accomplished the inauguration of his kingdom through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. But this kingdom will not be consummated until he returns. I think this is good formal theology. I believe this is correct doctrine. I think the Bible teaches inaugurated eschatology. And before I was going to use this illustration, I texted Pastor Mark just to make sure he agrees, and he does. I think some of these clergymen had this formal theology of the kingdom as well. But could our kingdom theology, this inaugurated eschatology, be something we theologically believe in while practically not live out? Most definitely. I believe this disconnect in formal and functional theology when it comes to the kingdom is actually a glaring weakness in the evangelical church, past and present, myself included. Could you imagine if there was a group of people in 2021 that not only believed in theory that Jesus' kingdom had been inaugurated and that he was reigning on his throne right now, but they actually lived like it? This would be a peculiar people. Their allegiance wouldn't be to the right. It wouldn't be to the left. Their allegiance would be to their reigning king, Jesus. And maybe the world around us might say, like they did at the early church in Acts 16, 21, if I can contextualize, quote, they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Americans to accept or practice. If our allegiance was solely to Jesus, we might even find ourselves politically homeless. Or at least it would challenge the notion that following Christ and being a Republican is one and the same. Our passage this morning is Psalm 132. Psalm 132. This is a royal psalm. The psalmist here is making an appeal to God on behalf of one of God's servants, King David. This appeal is for the Davidic dynasty and that God would make good on his promise to David so many years ago, from so many years ago. 
As we unpack this psalm, I believe you will see afresh a theology you already know. Jesus reigns. But my prayer is that as you are reminded by Psalm 132 that a royal king has been enthroned, that it would not stay simply intellectual kingdom theology, but rather it would make its way out into every crevice of your life. So Psalm 132, we'll start right in verse 1. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. The NIV uses the word self-denial instead of hardships. I think self-denial is the better translation, and this would be speaking specific to what the psalmist brings up in the rest of this passage. David's desire to build God a house, no matter the cost to himself. Verses 2 through 5 now show us what David's self-denial looked like. Look at verse 2. He swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of of Jacob. God had given David rest from his enemies, but as David is chilling in his beautiful, spacious crib, he can't get past the fact that God is in a tent. David is not going to sleep until the ark, which represents God's presence, has a home. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. This psalm is now sharing some Jewish history. This is the story of the lost ark being brought back into the camp. The ark is brought back to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6. But this journey began long before. In 1 Samuel 4, in the days of Samuel, while Israel was camped at Shiloh, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines after they defeated Israel in battle. This was a scene, if you know Israel's history, when Eli hears of his two sons dying in battle. Then he gets news that the Ark is captured and he falls over backwards and dies himself. The Ark was a big deal because it represented God's presence. Who was Israel without the ark? Nobody. And the glory of God had departed. Back to our text. The ark at Shiloh was kept by the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim's territory, also known as Ephrathah. Verse 6 again. Behold, we heard it. We heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. The fields of Jair, or fields of the wood, is all a poetic phrase for Kiriath-Jerim where Israel found the ark of God after God had afflicted the Philistines for seven months. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. When the ark is back in the sanctuary where it belongs, it wasn't placed just anywhere. The ark was in the holy of holies, and so now the Lord's presence is back in the midst of his people. Truly, the ark was the heart of the entire tabernacle. The ark represented the footstool of God himself. This is where heaven and earth met. 
The ark is now back. All is well in Israel. Or like the psalmist says in verse 9, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. Verses 10 through 12 now laser us back in on the burden of this psalm. Remember David. Look at verse 10. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. In his appeal for God to remember David, the psalmist here is reminding God of a covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. Let me give a little context for the Davidic covenant. After David returns the ark back to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6, David thinks this is the time to build God that house. He tells the prophet Nathan in chapter 7, I live in a house of cedar. God dwells in a tent. And so this prophet Nathan tells David, do whatever is in your heart until God steps in, calls an audible, not so fast, change of plans. God rejects David's offer for a house and instead gives David a dynasty. Second Samuel 7, 12 and 13, God is in the middle of making a covenant with David. These are the verses that our psalmist picks up on in our passage this morning. And so we can't understand the, the storyline of scripture unless we understand the covenants. The covenants are the backbone of scripture. So listen as I read these two verses. This is God's covenant with David. Second Samuel 7, 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled, God speaking to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The psalmist is crying out in Psalm 132, God Make good on your promise to David. You might be thinking, well, didn't David's son Solomon build a house? And you'd be right. The glorious temple. But Solomon and his sons failed to keep covenant. And so Israel was taken into captivity, right? Into exile. Solomon was a son from David's body, but he was not the son from his body who would sit on David's throne forever. Because he didn't. I was in Israel two years ago. King Solomon was not ruling. God promised King David a son from his body. That he would set on his throne. And when this son comes, his kingdom will have no end. The psalmist is crying out, remember David, O Lord. Make good on your promise to David. Verse 13 through 16 focus our attention to a location. When David's greater son is enthroned, where will this take place? Where will this be? Verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. 
For this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. Zion. Zion. The Lord has chosen Zion for his resting place forever. Interesting to note attention given to the poor in this text that are satisfied with bread. And the priests who in verse 9 are clothed with righteousness, now they're clothed with salvation. And what are the saints in Zion busy doing? Shouting for joy. The psalmist is singing to God, remember David. Because when God remembers his covenant with David and a son from David's body is set on the throne, this son will usher in the dynasty in which the Lord will rest forever in Zion and God's people will be shouting with joy. Remember David, O Lord. Let's look at the last two verses of this psalm. Verse 17 There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. In Israel's history, we know that the Davidic dynasty literally came to an end in 586 BC when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. So for Israel, these promises for a Davidic dynasty, for God to fulfill his covenant that he made with David, that a son would rule on his throne forever, that his enemies would be clothed with shame. But on this anointed one, a crown would shine. Well, after the exile in 586, this hope for Israel became an eschatological hope, an end time hope. This anointed Davidic king, when he came, he was going to usher in the end of the age. This anointed David, this anointed Davidic king was going to bring in the, 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 the psalm of ascent to the highest peak possible, Mount Zion. The Psalms, as you guys know, was the Jewish hymnal. And it still is. But many Jews, many Jews are still waiting for this Messiah from Psalm 132. We know as Christians who the anointed one is, who David's greater son is. How the Davidic covenant has been fulfilled by Jesus, the Messiah. Right? All the Psalms find their fulfillment in Christ. The Psalms are now our hymnal because of the one whom they all point to, Jesus. But many Jews missed Jesus because they were looking for a conquering anointed one, a Messiah who would come in and usher this dynasty in a way they expected, a crown placed on his head that would shine bright for all to see, and Rome, their enemy, to be shamed utterly destroyed. This didn't happen the way they expected, and so they still wait. If only they saw this anointed one, Israel's Messiah, through the lens of Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. 
They would have not been totally surprised that King David's greater son ushered in his dynasty and inaugurated his kingdom through a cross. That Jesus was actually the one who was shamed. He was mocked, spit on, beaten, crucified. He was given a crown, but it was a crown of thorns. David's greater son is the king of king, but king of kings, but he's the crucified king. He inaugurates his kingdom, but he does it through suffering. He comes to take away the sin of the world by living a perfectly obedient life without sin and dies a brutal death on behalf of sinners. They had no category in their minds for this anointed one of Psalm 132 to die. They expected the anointed one, the Messiah, to usher in Zion. They thought the inauguration and the consummation of this kingdom would happen at the same time, on the same day. The one who gets the forever throne could not die. He wouldn't be the anointed one. So they thought. So they still think. But as we know, David's greater son, King Jesus, did not stay dead. This anointed one rose from the dead and defeated death. And now anyone, Jew and Gentile, you and me, can receive forgiveness of sins and new life in Christ through repentance and faith. This is good news. This is good news. If you don't know Jesus as King, as Lord, come to him this morning by faith. Give your allegiance to this King. But many Christians, unfortunately, will stop at forgiveness. And don't think for a moment I'm brushing past the fact that in Christ we are forgiven. I preach the gospel to myself every day because I need to be constantly reminded that there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ, that I am fully known, fully loved, fully forgiven. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But still, many Christians will stop here at forgiveness of sins. Maybe it's because we're so individualistic in our culture. Whatever the reason, the problem with this is Jesus doesn't stop at the resurrection. He doesn't stay with them after he rises from the dead. He's headed somewhere. Actually, the climax of the resurrection is the ascension, the enthronement of Jesus as king. He raises from the dead in bodily form and ascends to the right hand of God where his session begins as Lord and King. This is the promise of God's covenant with David that our psalm brings up. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Sadly, the the doctrine of the ascension of Christ has become an aside to the story of redemption. One theologian says it is remarkable how little mention the ascension gets these days. 
once it was seen as the climax of the mystery of Christ. Through Jesus' excellent life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus is enthroned as king. David's greater son, his dynasty, his session has begun. Listen to uh, Dr. Patrick Schreiner explain the importance of the ascension and session of Christ. He says, quote, Christ's ascension and session needs better narrative and theological positioning. Without it, other doctrines become misaligned. Without it, our good news is truncated. If the ascension had not happened, Jesus' royal authority would not have been confirmed. If the ascension had not happened, then Christ would not be in heaven ruling. If the ascension had not happened, the church would not be an entity. If the ascension had not happened, then no human would ever rule with God. If the ascension had not happened, Christ would not have been installed as Lord. Because the ascension happened, Jesus' royal authority is confirmed. The Son of God did not come down to earth to stay. He arrived in order that he might return and then return again. The Jews were expecting the Davidic king to come and usher in the kingdom in such a way that their enemies would be clothed with shame and their king's crown would shine bright as they physically reigned with him in joy. This will still happen. Christ, the king, is coming back. His enemies will be clothed with shame. His crown will shine. Zion will be the redeemed new heavens and new earth that we read about in Revelation 21 and 22. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But until that day, we live in this already not yet. This inaugurated eschatology we talked about earlier. The Bible talks about the present evil age and the age to come. We are living in an interesting time in redemptive history. These two ages, present evil age and age to come, are overlapping. The kingdom is already and not yet here. Right now, King Jesus is reigning from his throne and all authority in heaven and on earth is his. When he comes back, the present evil age will be no more, just the age to come. His kingdom will be consummated. No more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. New heavens, new earth, new bodies. Can I get an amen? But until then, we live in this tension of Christ already reigning as king on his throne now, even amidst this quite obvious evil age. So the question is, how shall we then live? In this already not yet season of Christ's kingdom, how shall we then live? This will be our application this morning. Earlier, I talked about the difference between our formal and functional theology. Maybe for some of us, it's it's just about getting better formal theology in the first place. Jesus didn't come only to forgive us 
from sins and save us from hell. Praise God that he came for that. But he also came to be enthroned as king. And as we understand this in our formal theology, how do we get our functional theology to follow suit? How does this understanding of the Davidic covenant being fulfilled in Christ flesh itself out in my actual life, in how I live? The applications, I think, are endless. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would move in all of our lives, showing us ways in which we ought to live in light of our King reigning. From our finances to the way we steward our time, our social media feeds, our resources, our jobs, our influence, to how we love our spouses and raise our kids, to how we manage our singleness and honor our parents, to what we look at with our eyes and how we live as sexual beings in this sexualized culture. The list can go on and on because to be a Christian means that we are not our own. We belong to God. And when Jesus is enthroned as king, as he is right now, we are called to give our king, the king, our full allegiance. This is what it means to be a Christian. Jesus Christ as king now in this already not yet kingdom has massive implications for every area of our lives. I'll give one example and it will be brief and then I'll pray, I'll close and pray that the Lord would show all of us areas in our life this week where Christ the king must reign. So one quick example before I land this plane, and it will be comfort and justice. So let's talk about these things for just a second here. Comfort and justice. Going back to my introduction, the eight Alabama clergymen all had a theology that promoted justice. They should have not have waited. I think we would all agree on that. But maybe, just maybe, their formal theology played itself out functionally by setting up their own kingdoms. Maybe for some of them, their formal theology was legit. But their functional theology was that their own comfort was king. There was a disconnect. We as Americans, and Parkerites, I live in Parker too, we love our comfort, don't we? I know I do. We seek it at all costs, and once we have it, we will do everything we must to protect it. In his book, Peace, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann talks about the experience for many Christians who are well-off in this life. He says, the well-off do not expect their faith to begin in a cry, but rather in a song. They do not expect or need intrusion. They rejoice in stability and the durability of a world and social order that has benefited them. If our kingdom theology plays itself out functionally by promoting our own kingdom, our comfort, then it doesn't matter how good our formal kingdom theology is. We are on the throne. We are are on the throne. 
And this will be how we live out our days. It doesn't matter what we believe in intellectually. We will tell the world to wait. Zion is coming as we live out our best life now. But if Jesus is king and he reigns now, if his kingdom has been inaugurated and we are called to live as his kingdom citizens now, we may love our comfort, but our love for our comfort will submit to our love for our king and what he commands. So for instance, when we hear Jesus say how we treat the least of these is how we treat Jesus in Matthew 25, we don't just say, that's a crazy passage. Praise God for the five solas. No, rather the least of these become pretty important to us. Why? Because they're important to our king. Or when we read a passage like Jeremiah 9, 24, and we hear our king say, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. In these things I delight, says the Lord. These things, love, justice, righteousness, become a big deal to us because they're a big deal to our king. So, for instance, to stay in the realm of justice, we are Christians who pursue biblical justice, which means we fight against injustice with a kingdom agenda and worldview, not a secular one. So before we jump on Facebook accusing Christians of being woke CRT Marxists, we at least have to ask ourselves, who is our allegiance to? Who are we listening to? Who are we taking our orders from? If it's to King Jesus, then justice, for instance, is actually quite important. I'm talking about biblical justice. Whatever our king is about, we are about. This is what it means to be kingdom citizens. Not like Dr. Esau Macaulay says, hungering for justice is hungering for the kingdom. There are many versions of social justice that are not biblical, obviously. But biblical justice is always social. And we need nuance, church. We must be about our king's agenda. Whatever our king is about, we are about. We're not just waiting for the consummation to come and for all to be made right. He's on his throne now. We pray and live out your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So from sex trafficking to child abuse, caring for the poor and marginalized to ethnic injustice, educational inequalities to domestic abuse, murdering unborn babies to mass incarceration, police brutality to the refugee crisis, caring for those in the foster care system to loving on widows in their time of need. And as you guys know, this list can go on and on and on. And we can't do it all, but we do engage in the fight of injustice because Christ is king. We don't just wait for the consummation, living our best life now. His kingdom has been inaugurated. His session has begun. We get busy as ambassadors for the king. And the topic of justice is just one area his kingdom reign affects now. 
Like I said, applications to Psalm 132 are endless. Jesus Christ is king in this already not yet kingdom that we are citizens of has massive implications for every area of your life. So I guess the question I want to leave you with from Psalm 132 is this. Is King Jesus on the throne? Or are you? Is King Jesus on the throne? Or are you? Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you. Thank you that you remembered your covenant with David. That you remembered your covenant with David. That you set Christ on the throne now. God, I pray that we would live as kingdom citizens here in Parker, that we would be an embassy that makes Jesus famous, God. Show us areas in our life, God. Search our hearts, God. Show us areas in our life that Christ is not king, but we are. And lead us to the way everlasting. Amen.